Lord, we're here this morning to praise you. Lord, to, to lift you up in our hearts and our minds, Lord. We desire, Lord, to worship you, to set aside distractions, things that would get in the way of us just laying our hearts out before you in worship. And Lord, I pray, Lord, this morning, even as we have spent this time in worship, Lord, that our hearts would be prepared to receive your word. Lord, you're so good to us. You're so worthy of our worship. So worthy of our praise. Pour out your spirit upon us this morning. Unite us, Lord, in purpose. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Stephanie. Thank you for coming and blessing us. Amen. Psalm 150. This particular psalm has a title to it, Let All Things Praise the Lord. This is a portion of it. Starting in verse 1, it says, Praise the Lord! Exclamation mark. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty firmament. Praise Him for His mighty acts. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise Him with the lute and the harp. Praise Him with the timbrel and dance. Praise Him with stringed instruments and flutes. Praise Him with loud cymbals. Praise Him with clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Isn't that awesome? I mean, God actually receives our worship. He doesn't want to just hear our voices sing. He wants to hear our hearts. He wants it as the worship song, there was everything within us. can be convicting if we know that we're sitting there thinking, it's not everything that's within me that I'm praising you. But my prayer this morning is that we would truly have hearts to hear, open to hear what the Spirit wants to say to us. And that connection between worship and the Word of God are essential. We need that. And so we had a blessed celebration of life service yesterday. That's why we have all the flowers around for our beloved brother, Bruce Harrison. It was a a wonderful time of just remembering back 
but it made a lot of us cry and miss our brother Bruce. Continue to pray for Carolyn, family, and um, a number of families in this church that uh, have lost ones, loved ones, uh, just in the last six months. And uh, we need to hold one another up in prayer for those things. Well, turn in your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 14. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 5 uh, this morning. Father, we lift up for this time of teaching, Lord, that you, Lord, would speak your truth into our hearts. That your Holy Spirit would illuminate, would give us understanding to the things that we're hearing this morning, the things that we're reading in your word, the promises that are to come, the end times, the end of all things that's to come. Lord, would you stir our hearts with an excitement, with an anticipation of your soon return. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. I titled this morning's message, The Faithful Lamb and the 144,000 Redeemed. Let's read our text together. Revelation chapter 14, starting in verse 1. Then I looked, John says, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps, they sang as it were a new song before the throne, before the living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Back, if you remember, uh, those that have been here uh, so far through the book of Revelation, back in chapter 7, John saw these 144,000, which I believe are Jews. And the reason why I believe they're Jews is because it tells me that there are 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Those are not Gentiles. Those are Jews. That's the way I see it and read it in my Bible. And it says that these 144,000, or at least it's implied in that chapter, that God is going to use these Jews in a special way during the tribulation period. I believe that they're going to be a witness, but they're also going to be a testimony 
to all those here on earth during that time of how God is able to protect, how God is able to preserve a remnant of his people, and that's Israel. That God is going to save a remnant of his people, Israel. Anytime you read about Israel and scriptures and God's faithfulness to them, just keep in mind that if God is faithful to them, he is also going to be faithful to you. The promises that he specifically has given to the church, he's going to be faithful to fulfill those promises to you and I that are church age saints. In Revelation 7, Verse 2, this is what we read. Then I saw another angel, John says, ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And so here's this angel flying through the heavens, having this seal in hand of the living God. And he cried, with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. These are evil angels. These are demons. These are ones that are given permission to go out and to destroy and to harm and to kill. Yet this loud voice uh, that is coming from this angel that is flying with this seal in his hand is saying... Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Have you ever wondered if God is going to remember you in the end? You think about the multitudes and the millions and the millions of people that have come to faith in Jesus Christ through all the centuries. And then there's you. One individual. Just one person out of all of this multitude of people. Is God going to forget you? Is he going to forget the things about you? The things that you've done? In the name of the Lord. I don't believe God will. As a matter of fact. Paul wrote in Ephesians 1.13. He said. In him. You also trusted. After you heard the word of truth. Raise your hand. If you've put your trust in Jesus Christ. In him. You also trusted. After you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, Paul says, you also were sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of promise, it says. It's the Holy Spirit of promise who is the guarantee of your inheritance. How many of you have an inheritance coming here on earth? Some of us might think we might, but we never know for sure, do we? Until it gets down to that time. But let me tell you this. God 
has sealed those who believe with his Holy Spirit. And it's the guarantee of your inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Amen? The Holy Spirit is the guarantee. When you give your life to Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit of God comes and makes residence within you and you are sealed with His Holy Spirit. And He gives us that promise, that guarantee that what He has promised will come to pass. He won't forget you. Church age saints have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. The 144,000 that we read in Revelation 7, they have the seal of God upon their foreheads. Speaking about that protection that God has upon these Jews during the tribulation period. God never forgets. He won't forget those 144,000 that he seals. That he puts that seal on their foreheads and he will not forget you. Paul, he also said in 2 Timothy 2.19, he says, Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands. Having this seal, the Lord knows who are his. The Lord knows every one of us here. If we're a child of God or if we're not. And how many people in this world say they're Christian? Or they attribute their their faith to Christianity. Yet they don't know him. And the Lord knows those who are his. But he also knows those who are not. Who are not his. We need to be sure. We need to have that confidence in our hearts that we truly are a child of God. And I believe that this confidence that we have in God that he will never forget. He's also never going to forget your work. He's never going to forget those things that you have labored for. In the name of Christ. That love that comes forth out of your life. That has compelled you to do acts of kindness towards others. To live a life as a Christian. Not just saying you're a Christian. But actually living a life. Showing forth the love of Christ in our lives. We read in the book of Hebrews in chapter 6 verse 10. For God is not unjust to forget your work and your labor of love. He won't forget. Which you have shown towards his name in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. Many of you have ministered to me. And I hope that I've ministered to you. And ministering within the body of Christ, that's what we do. 
And God will never forget your labor of love. Paul, in the book of Galatians, in chapter 6, verse 9, he exhorts each one of us here to not grow weary in doing good. Have you ever felt wearied down? Have you ever felt that tiredness in ministry? Have you ever felt like giving up? Paul here, he says, don't grow weary in doing good. Because in due time, you will reap if you don't give up. My encouragement to all of us, don't give up. Don't give in. Trust God. Ask Him for strength and grace and the ability to to go forward each and every day. Don't stop doing the good things that you do for your growth. Don't stop. Keep doing it. Keep pressing hard towards the goal. Do you see the goal in your mind's eye? Do you see it ahead? Every day you're getting older. Every day you're drawing closer to that day where you will stand before the Lord. Whether He comes back to take us or you pass on and you go to be with Him. Do you see that goal in your mind's eye? We need to keep running the race, don't we? Races are not always easy. Try getting out and running some laps. After church here. Not always easy. Especially if you don't train for it. But we're in a race. And we're not called to stop. We have to stay in our lane. And keep running. As an individual. We need to keep. That finish line in our eye. It's going to come to an end church. Don't get caught up into the fact. That this just keeps going on and on. Especially you younger people. Older you get, the more the reality sinks in. Younger you are, ah, we got lots of time. In reality, we don't always have a lot of time. But in the end, God is going to be faithful to you. He's going to be faithful. Remember back in chapter 13. And verse 7, when John saw the beast, we're told that the beast, which is the Antichrist, was prevailing over the saints. It was granted to him, verse 7, the Antichrist, to make war with the saints and to overcome them. You know how I know that this isn't the church? Because we will never be overcome. As a matter of fact, the Bible says opposite to you and I that know Christ. You are already an overcomer in Christ Jesus. You have already overcome. And so who is, if it's not the church saints, then who are those that are being overcome? I believe that the saints here in context is referring to the Jews. 
they, during the tribulation time, there will be a focus upon the nation of Israel and to the Jews that are here during that time. And Satan, in the Antichrist, is going to deceive. He's going to overcome many of God's people. John here is thinking, when he saw the Antichrist empowered by Satan, prevailing against his people Israel, that in the end, John might have been thinking, is Satan going to prevail over my people Israel? Is Satan going to prevail in the end? But in chapter 14, where we're at this morning, look what it says in in verse 1, where John now looks after what he had just seen prior to this. He sees something else here that begins to once again revive his hope. Have you ever had to have your hope revived? You've been in a place where you're downcast, where you're losing hope, and you need hope revived. I think John in the moment, I have to think that as he looked, and he sees this vision, and behold, we're told, a lamb was standing on Mount Zion. And with him, 144,000. And look what it says, having the Father's name written on their foreheads. Going back to chapter 7 again, which I believe chapter 7 really, though we're reading it in chapter 7, these 144,000 that are being sealed by God really go back to the beginning of the seven-year tribulation period. And what John is seeing here now In chapter 14, verse 1, is he seeing these 144,000 now standing on Mount Zion in Jerusalem with the Lamb of God? All of that tells me that when God seals, when God says he's going to protect, when he's going to preserve, that God has done that. It's showing us here even God's faithfulness. It's showing us here that God is able to protect. Consider those Jews going through the tribulation period, these 144,000, having to be here on earth during that time. And here's God protecting, preserving, and being faithful to that remnant, that 144,000, and even those who would come through their testimony and their witness. John actually sees three scenes in this chapter. But in this particular scene that we're looking at this morning, it's behold a lamb standing on Mount Zion. Now whenever you see the word behold in scripture, it's a word that calls special attention to what John was seeing. John says, behold, and he sees this lamb 
Some translations read this way, Behold the Lamb, which is important. And I believe it is the Lamb, the Lamb of God. In chapter 13, verse 11, we saw another Lamb. That Lamb is a false prophet. It says of this lamb that he was like a lamb. It doesn't say that he is the lamb, but that he is like a lamb. And that's not the lamb that John is seeing here in this vision of the lamb standing on Mount Zion. You see, the word lamb is important to all of us. All of us know Jesus Christ as the lamb that was slain before the foundations of the world. We know of John seeing Jesus come out to be water baptized. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You see this lamb was going to be the last lamb all other lambs before it, all under the old covenant, those ended until when the last lamb came. That last lamb, Jesus Christ, when he hung on that cross for the sins of the world. We don't sacrifice lambs anymore because the lamb has finished the work. 32 times we see the word lamb in the New Testament. 28 of those times are in the book of Revelation. Four of those times are here in this chapter. An important word. Jesus is the lamb that John saw standing on Mount Zion. The first time, though, that John saw this lamb takes us back to chapter 5. Verse 6, when John was taken up, remember in chapter 5, he was in that heavenly scene where he was translated, so to speak, where his vision was of this heavenly scene that he saw. He saw the church age saints, the 24 elders. He saw this miraculous vision of the heavenly scene. And we read in verse 6 of chapter 5, John says, look, and again, behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as though it had been slain. The last time that John will see this word lamb is in chapter 22 of Revelation in verse 3, where it says, and there will be no more curse. But the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servant shall serve him. John saw this Lamb. John knew who this Lamb was, and it revived his hope for Israel. John is seeing something that is still yet future. Something that has not yet come to pass. But that's what's so incredible about God. Is that God could show John something as if it's already a done deal. 
He's going to say, this is what's going to happen, John. And John could be sitting there. That is what's going to happen. He's already shown him the end. And he is showing him the end here of these 144,000. That maybe it would be a question. Were they going to survive the tribulation period? But I want you to notice that as John sees this 144,000 standing with the Lamb, that it doesn't say that there was 143,999, but that there is 144,000. In other words, God hasn't lost a one. You see, all that the Father gives to the Son, He says, I haven't lost a one. And God won't lose you either. He won't forget you. He knows you to the very end. I think John in this moment was filled with such hope and encouragement. I think as he saw his fellow Jews, these 144,000 that he had already seen be sealed by God now standing there, he was filled with an excitement, with a renewed hope. And he also saw them standing on Mount Zion. Now for you and I that are Gentiles, Mount Zion doesn't have the same impact that it had upon a Jew. Mount Zion, Jerusalem, was that focal point. Everything led to that place. Everything was at that place. Everything for our salvation is at that place. John, he sees these Jews standing on Mount Zion there in Jerusalem. God's chosen place in the Jews' mind. We read in Psalm 132 verse 13, it says this about Zion, For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place. Notice it says forever. Here I will dwell for I have desired it. Thirty times in the 150 Psalms that we have in our Bible. The word Zion is found. You see, every practicing Jew that would have been reading those Psalms, he would have had it in his mind, the significance and the importance of Zion there in Jerusalem. For you and I that are Gentiles, for you and I that even some Gentiles have been referred to, you're one of those Zionists, aren't you? You see, a Zionist is somebody, even being a Jew, that believes that God has given Israel the land. They have given them a Jewish state. They've given them a whole land. They've been given a homeland by God. And by the fact that you agree with that, you're a Zionist. I believe that the land that has been allotted 
to the nation of Israel? Is their land given by God to them? And I don't question that. Though there are some Christians today that would question that. That God is done with Israel. Yet I don't believe that he is. He has promises and covenants that he will fulfill with them. We find this word Zion in the book of Revelation only this time that we're reading this morning. One time in the book. But we do see this word Zion mentioned throughout the Old Testament. And the first time that it's actually mentioned is back in 2 Samuel chapter 5. This is when King David came into the land and he conquered the ancient city of Jebus and he overtook a people there called the Jebusites. And it says in their fortified city and he went to battle with them and King David, after he won that battle, he built a city which was called the city of David. We read in 2 Samuel 5, 6. And the king and his men, they went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land who spoke to David saying, you shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will repel you. That's what the Jebusites were saying to David and his army. Even the blind and the lame will repel you. Thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold, we're told, of Zion. That is the city of David. And he built there in Zion, on, in Jerusalem there. He built the city of David. Zion can also refer to the millennial city. It's where Christ will reign one day. When he sets up his throne on the king of on the, the throne of David. And it's where we're going to reign with Christ for a thousand years during that millennial kingdom, which will follow the seven-year tribulation period. We read about this in from the prophet Joel in chapter 3, verse 12. It says, Let the nations be wakened. And come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. The valley of Jehoshaphat is where the battle of Armageddon is going to be fought. For there I will sit to judge. This is the Lord. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle. Now if you look down in your Bibles at verse 14 of chapter 14. You'll read about this sickle. Put in the sickle. For the harvest is ripe. Come, go down, for the wine press is full, the vats overflowing, for their wickedness is great, and God is going to judge in the valley of Jehoshaphat all the nations that are going to come for that great battle in the end. It goes on to say, multitudes and multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near the valley of decision. The sun and the moon will grow dark. And the stars will diminish their brightness. You can read about that in Matthew 24, verse 29. Jesus said what it would be like at his second coming. The Lord also will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. 
the heavens and the earth will shake, but the Lord will be a shelter for his people and the strength of the children of Israel. So you shall know, and this is why, and so that you shall know that I am the Lord your God. See, God does these things. He proves himself. That you will know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain, then Jerusalem shall be holy. And no aliens, listen to this, no aliens shall ever pass through her again. And I believe that's speaking of the millennial kingdom to come. God is going to take what this uh, Satan and this world has destroyed. And God says, I'm going to set up my kingdom. There's going to be new rules. It's going to be under my righteous judgment during that time. And there will be no aliens that will pass through it ever again. If you look down in Joel's prophecy, down in that same chapter in verse 21, it says, For the Lord dwells in Zion. It's his resting place forever. Also, the prophet Zechariah, in chapter 1, verse 16, it says, Therefore, thus says the Lord, I am returning to Jerusalem with mercy. Zion, keep in mind, is in Jerusalem. My house shall be built in it, says the Lord of hosts. And a a surveyor's line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Again proclaim, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, my city shall again spread out their prosperity. The Lord will again comfort Zion and will again choose Jerusalem. You can also read about this in Zechariah chapter 8 verses 3 to 8 153 times throughout the Old Testament it speaks of Zion the prophets and every Jew that read his Bible and read the prophets and read the Psalms they were looking forward to that day in Zion that day to them was future that day was coming for them But also Zion in the New Testament can refer to the heavenly Jerusalem. We read about that in in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22 to 24. We see in that, this section, this contrast between two mountains. The mountain of Moses, which represents the law or the Old Testament. And then we have the Mount Zion which represents the new covenant in the New Testament. Hebrews 12.22 says, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, he's called, it's called here, to an innumerable company of angels. I believe this is that heavenly Jerusalem in heaven. To the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. To God, the judge of all. To the spirits of just men made perfect. To Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. And to the blood of the sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. The heavenly Jerusalem. When we... Get to Revelation 21 and 22. We're going to see that the new Jerusalem in heaven. This heavenly Jerusalem. 
is going to be described to us in detail. Actually, his measurements is pretty incredible to read. The New Jerusalem. Israel in Scripture is also referred to as the daughter of Zion. They're called the daughter of Zion. Matthew 21, 5, John 12, 15. It says in Matthew 21, 5, tell the daughter of Zion, that's speaking of Israel, behold, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey, the colt, the foal of a donkey. When did that happen? When Jesus came in as triumphantly into Jerusalem, to Mount Zion. The question might arise whether John is seeing in the future these 144,000 standing on an earthly Zion or are they in the heavenly Zion? Where are these 144,000 that we're reading about this morning? It appears to me that it's the earthly Zion. In other words, the place that's there today, if you go to Israel, the earthly Zion, because John sees Jesus standing with these 144,000. He sees them there with them. And this is another one of those times where John is able to see ahead. He's seeing something that has not actually happened yet, but he's seeing ahead prophetically that this will come to pass. We see, as Christians, we're not hoping for victory someday, are we? If you're sitting here as a Christian, as a child of God this morning, and you're just hoping that someday you'll be victorious and you'll go to heaven, that's not a good place to be. God wants us to be much more assured than that. He wants us to be living as Christians, living in victory. You already have the victory. The battle has already been won for you. Where was it won? It was won at the cross. Victory over sin. Victory over the grave. It's given to you. It's already a done deal. You're more than a conqueror through Jesus Christ who loves you. 1 John 5, 4. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. That's your victory, Shadow. I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ to save me whenever that was. And in that, you have victory. In that, you are already an overcomer. We're also told that they have their father's name written on their foreheads. And here, again, is another contrast that we can see in looking back to chapter 13. Remember uh, the mark that's going to be on the, the right hand and on the forehead that identifies those who make allegiance to Satan? It's called the mark of the beast. But here it is where the Lord puts this, uh, this name upon their forehead. You see how Satan always wants to do that. He always wants to mimic what God is doing. But here, 
this name written on their foreheads. It, it, it says to John when he sees this, this is my possession. These are mine. I preserved them through this tribulation period and they're standing here with me, all 144,000. See, God always wins, doesn't he? Has God ever lost a fight? Sometimes in our own lives, we, we, we're wondering, is he going to win this one for me? He always wins. And by the fact that he always wins, you always win. Though you may not think so. You're always an overcome. You're always victorious in Jesus Christ. The tense of this word, the Father's name written on their foreheads, is past tense. It, it was written upon their foreheads, referring all the way back to when God sealed them. He sealed them back in chapter 7, and they have gone through the tribulation period, and now they're standing there with the Lamb. For John... Or first John, he sees in verse 1, but now he hears something in verse 2 and 3. Look at your Bibles. He describes it with three pictures. It says in verse 2, and I heard a voice from heaven. He saw something and now he hears something, but notice the voice is singular. I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters. And like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of the harpists playing their harps. He hears this voice. It, it, it sounds like many waters. It sounds like thunder. It sounds like the harpists playing their harps. John is hearing this in this vision. It doesn't tell us the identity of the voice. But it describes what John is hearing. And you see, if God wanted us to know for sure the identity, he would have told us the identity. So what that means is the important point of this is not who's saying it, but what's being said or what's being sung. It's like the voice of many waters. It's like this loud thunder. And we, we've heard all those things ourselves in the natural realm. But it takes us even back to chapter 1, verse 15, where John saw the vision of Christ and we're told his feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. He's getting this vision of the glorified Christ. And his voice, we're told, was as the sound of many waters. Also in Revelation 4, 5. And from the throne, we're told, proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. I think when God speaks, it's the only way that John could describe it. It was like the sound of many waters. It was like that thunder that you hear. And he says it's like the harpists playing their harps. 
possible that these are angels that are rejoicing in the redemption of these 144,000 that are standing with the Lamb on Mount Zion? We read in Revelation 19.6, John says, And I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Imagine that. You want to hear what that's going to sound like with a multitude of voices thundering? For the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Could be the voice of the Father proclaiming to John that he has redeemed and kept these 144,000. and He's brought them to Mount Zion. The faithfulness of God. I heard a sound. I heard a voice. I heard singing possibly. Of harpists playing their harps. And again, there's various possibilities with this. It says that he heard these harpists playing their harps. Other translations put it this way. The New American Standard does. And a voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. Sound pretty beautiful, I would say. It, it gives us the feeling of some raising of voices. Some rejoicing in what is John is seeing there on Mount Zion. Look what it goes on to say in verse 3. They speak, and I believe possibly of angels. They sang as it were a new song before the throne. And this word song is present tense, meaning they are singing. And they are singing before the four living creatures, we're told. And the elders that are there, that same scene that we saw back in Revelation chapter 4, and we're told that no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. It's very possible that no one could learn this song or no one knew this song except them because this was unique to them. They had been redeemed from this earth. God had preserved them and protected them. And can you imagine the song that would come forth from their heart as they stand there next to the Lamb on Mount Zion? Redeemed by God. Protected and preserved by God. Lifting up voices of praise to their God. If it's the host of angels that are in heaven, that they're singing, and they're singing before the four living creatures and the elders. And they're singing, I believe, in a way in which they have never sung before. It's not new in the sense, but it's just that they were lifting up voices like they had never done before. As if it were a new song before the throne. Revelation chapter 5 in verse 9 speaking about 
the church-age believers. By the way, we're church-age believers. So put yourself in this place. The church-age believers are also going to sing a new song. Different than the song of the 144,000. We read, and they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe, tongue, and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. We have our own song and I have to believe that when we are in the presence of the Lord someday you are going to sing that song like you've never sung before. Lifting up your whole heart, everything within you, praising God. So often we find ourselves shrinking back here. I don't think that'll be that case when you're on that day. We're told that in verse 3 that no one could learn the song except these 144,000 that have been redeemed, those that have been preserved those that are being gathered back in victory to Zion. And now we come to verse 4 and 5. And we see in these verses six things that show us the faithfulness of God, number one, but show us the faithfulness of these 144,000 who were told they follow the Lamb wherever He goes? Good question for us to ask ourselves. Are we following Jesus? Are we following the Lamb wherever He goes? Wherever He directs us? I think that that, if we could just do that, Be a true follower of Jesus Christ. It'll save us so much heartache, so much, you know, Lord, I just want to be where you're at. Look at verse 4. These 144,000 are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among men, being first fruits to God and to the Lamb. These 144,000 Jews are given, we might say, special honor as they enter into that millennial kingdom here on earth. To stand there with the Lamb. A special honor as they enter in. They've been through the tribulation periods, but sealed by God. And in that time and in that seven year tribulation period, as they were sealed by God, we're told that they were not defiled with women, for they were virgins. This has opened up different interpretations. I'll give them to you. Many think that what we're reading here is just a way of speaking of their moral purity. 
as Jews during that time. Others see this meaning as them keeping themselves from sexual relations with women during this seven years. And still others, they see this as meaning both morally pure and sexually pure during these seven years. They were not defiled with women, for they were virgins. Some believe that it's just both. They were committed to what tasks they had before them, sealed by God during that time, servants of God. We know that Israel themselves in Jeremiah 31.4 is referred to as O Virgin of Israel. In 2 Kings 19.21, it says, The Virgin, the daughter of Zion, the daughter of Jerusalem. It's terminology to Israel, very unique to the nation of Israel, to Jews. If we see this word virgins as being figurative, then we could say that these 144,000, that they remained faithful to the Lord. That would be the point. They remained faithful to the Lord. And they kept themselves pure during this time. As we also are called to do, we're passing through. We have a particular amount of time here on earth. We're called to the same. And God says, I'll give you what you need to do it. They were faithful. They remained pure to the end. These are the ones we're told that were not defiled with women for their virgins, but also these are ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. And that in itself speaks of obedience. Their obedience to God. Their being faithful in their service to God. Being obedient to the will of God. If you want to know the will of God, open up your word. Read in your word what God's will is for your life. And what you'll find is it's the same for all of us. He has a general will. There's specific will that he might have for you and you. But there's a general will that he has for all of us. And that will of God is that we would remain obedient. That we would remain faithful to him. Is that what you're doing? Are you remaining faithful to God? Are you following him wherever he goes? If you think that it's hard for you now to do that, think what it will be like for those 144,000 during the tribulation period. The third thing of these 144,000, they've been redeemed from among men. 
And this word redeemed, it literally means to buy, to purchase, to do business in a marketplace. But that redemptive price was the blood of the Lamb. They've been redeemed. You've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. They also, being the first fruits to God and to the Lamb. Now, first fruits in Scripture, in the Bible, it always speaks to the Jew. They understood this completely that first fruits was the first portion of the harvest that was dedicated to God. They gave that first portion back to God. They gave them their first. They didn't give God their seconds. They didn't even give God their leftovers. You see, quite often we just give him the leftovers of our time. The leftovers of our resources. The leftovers of our service. We just give him whatever's left over. We don't always give him the first fruits of our life. The first fruits of our abundance and our resources that we that God has given to us. And because of that, we're lean. Because of that, we suffer quite often for it. And you know what it shows? It really shows the priority of our hearts when you give of your first fruits unto God. Some say that these 144,000 will be the first fruits of others that will follow their ministry during the tribulation time. Here's the 144,000 and the rest are coming in because they had a work. They were used of God during that time and now they are the first fruits and the others are following in to that millennial kingdom. Others see the first fruits here as being the 144,000. But that's just the start of what God is going to do. We read also in verse 5, And in their mouth was found no deceit. For they were without fault before the throne of God. In their mouth was found no deceit. In other words, they spoke truth. And what came out of their mouth was truth and not error. It wasn't deceitful. They weren't trying to trick people. Their mouth was a testimony of their relationship with God. But they were also without fault before the throne of God. In other words, their lives followed their mouth. It wasn't just the things they said, but it was the things they did. And that's what we need to be as Christians. Not just ones that say we are. Not just ones that have the Christian lingo. But that there's actually something that follows our words. That people will see. In other words, if somebody cannot blame God because of your testimony, you're on the right track. 
that somebody can't find some fault with you and say, oh yeah, you're one of those Christians, aren't you? I mean, none of us want to hear that. And we're hoping sometimes when we're not doing something right that another Christian doesn't see it. But know this, God always sees it. In closing, I want to read to you um, from Psalm 15, uh, verses 1 to 5. Again, King David, he describes a citizen in Zion. And he, he speaks about the character of those who would dwell with the Lord. And every Jew knew that there was only one acceptable way that man could approach God, that man could come to the temple. They knew that there was only one acceptable way. Look what he says, Psalm 15, 1 to 5. Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Notice it's a question. Who may dwell in your holy hill? Another question. He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. He who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. He who does not put out his money as usury. Nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. God requires something from us. We approach God. We want to approach God. We have an open ear from God. The God that I would come with clean hands and a pure heart. That I would, uh, that I would come before you with heart of repentance. For my sin and my failures. That when I approach you and I come before you. That I can come with boldness and confidence before your throne. That's a good place to be in. To be honest with you, in my life I've been in both, and I think you have too. Times where you're not in that place. Times where you haven't set your heart right. And times where you've sought to approach God, but your heart wasn't right. The testimony of these faithful saints that we read in these five verses... It reminds me of the faithful saints of Hebrews chapter 11. It reminds me and it motivates me in my own faith. You want to get kind of stirred up? Just read Hebrews chapter 11, the hallmark of faith. The men and women, if we could say they gave it all up in faith. That's what I believe that we're seeing here. 
These 144,000 saints are a testimony to you and I that if we will follow God's word, follow after the Lamb, follow wherever He leads, if we'll conduct ourselves as Christians in a way that no one can find fault with God, that they can't have an accusation. I don't want to be one of those Christians because I see you. That we would be people that would live in such a way that people might be drawn to Christ. Man, I, what is it about you? Why aren't you like all the rest here at work? Why do you do it differently? Why do you not lash out like so many others do? What's the difference? And Jesus himself said that we're to let our light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. See your good works? It's really God's works through you. That they may see something in you that they would have to sit back and go, there has to be a God in heaven. Because I knew who you were before. I grew up with you. I've been around you for years and now you're one of these, quote, Christians. And there is something different about you. A verse that is a good one to finish on is Jude 24. Do you have it memorized? Jude 24. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling, from stumbling, and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To wrap my head around that is hard to do. That God could take and keep you, the keeping power of God upon your life. And not only is He going to keep you, but He's going to present you. And not only is He going to present you, but He's going to present you faultless before the presence of His glory. And not only that, but He's going to do it with exceeding joy. Wow, me and all of my failures and shortcomings and by the grace of God, I am what I am. You see, that's all of us. If it weren't for his grace and his mercy every day, we need to be reliant upon the Holy Spirit, his power to give you the power to live your Christian walk, to be a witness for Christ. And so... Let's have Stephanie come up. Let's close this out in prayer. And she's going to lead us in a worship song. Let's all stand together. Father, we come before you and we thank you for sending the Lamb into this world to go to the cross, to pay the price for our sins, that we could have redemption. That we could be redeemed. That we could have forgiveness of sins. 
That we could be called saints. That we could be called the holy ones. That we could have confidence in our heart where we're going when we die. We could have that assurance. That we could stand in the victory that we have in Jesus Christ. Lord, that we don't have to rely upon our own efforts and our own works to get us into your presence someday. But Lord, it's you. It's all you. Lord, would you go before us today? Would you fill us afresh now? Lord, and if there's any wicked way in our heart, anything that we haven't laid out, Lord, even in that still small voice in our own hearts, Lord, would you forgive me? Lord, as I lay these things before you, Lord, do a work in your church. Change us, Lord. Make us more like you. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship.